Now, if I say, if you say, by the way, this morning, hey, I don't know what I think about this. That's okay. Just jot down some questions. Maybe make some, jot down some notes. You can, you can maybe email your questions to me or, or you can call. In fact, you can do that with Nate because his frontal lobes are so much bigger than mine. And, uh, they're, they're, but these are the essential beliefs of our, of our church. Ephesians 4, 4, 6 says this. There is one body and one spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of us all. So, so we're going to look at the essentials. There are a lot of things in the Christian life that are not essential. There are some things that you're going to differ with about with other people about what you believe. We consider a lot of those non-essential things to be areas where we just give people liberty. You know, if uh, and by the way, in doing so, we can have a lot of diversity here. Romans 14.1 says this, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Verse 11, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Verse 12, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So whatever you believe, verse 22, about these things, keep between yourself and God. Now let me give you a for instance about this. Okay, First of all, the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's probably three main positions about this. By the way, this will be the most theologically heavy Sunday that you will have in the next 25 years. <laughs> okay. But you're either premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. And if you have no idea what that means, don't worry about it. Because there's liberty. The thing that we believe that's essential is this, that Jesus is coming back. You know, he said no man knows the day or the hour, so why would I speculate about it? Okay. Uh, my dad one time said to me, live every day as if... Christ was coming tomorrow, but plan your life as if he's coming a thousand years from now. And, and I thought that was great advice. But uh, it's our responsibility to be ready and have our hearts ready. But beyond that, there's so many different views about the second coming of Christ that we can go back and forth and discussing it just as long as in the essentials we believe he's coming. Now, the point that I'm trying to make is in essential things we have unity. And there are many other things that are open to interpretation and we have liberty in those things. But in all those things, we have love. 1 Corinthians 13.2 says, If I hold in my mind not only all human knowledge, but also the very secrets of God, and if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I have no love, I amount to nothing at all. So listen, you could be theologically correct, and you can have all those things worked out about revelation, about who the beast is, and what the red horse is, and what the bull is, and what the trumpet is, and and all that's going to happen. And you can have Daniel figured out to the nth degree, but if you're not a loving person, who cares? You know, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is we have unity in the things that matter, and we allow each other liberty in the things that aren't as important, but above everything else, we relate to each other in a loving way. Now, Anybody who's familiar with historical Christian doctrine will know that the things that we're going to look at through the statement of faith here are right down the center of biblical theology for hundreds of years. Number one, we believe the Bible to be the inspired, the only infallible, authoritative word of God. Several years ago, I was invited to speak at a Youth for Christ banquet in Pugsatani, Pennsylvania. So I fly into Pittsburgh and the guy who's on the board of directors for Youth for Christ had his own private plane. It was one of these one-engine prop jobs, you know, two seats in the front and a bench in the back, and that was it. And I, I've never been more exhilarated and more scared in all my life. 
And so we're flying along, and I looked at the back on this bench, and there was like a welder's mask. You know, one of those things that had the round thing, and then the, the deal came down like this, like a visor. So I said to the guy, what's that for? He says, well, I put that on when I'm flying in the clouds. I said, well, why do you do that? He says, well, you see, when you're in the clouds, if you trust your equilibrium and your own balance, you might think that you're going this way so you'll compensate and go this way. But in reality, you were already going this way. So when you turn more to the left, you get into what pilots call a graveyard spiral. You get into a barrel roll that sometimes you can't get out of. And that's why they call it a graveyard spiral. So he says, whenever I go into the clouds, I put that mask on. And what it does is it doesn't allow me to see anything outside of the plane. It forces me to keep my eyes totally on the gauges in front of me. And as long as I fly, trusting what the gauges are telling me, I'll stay going straight. But when I start to rely on my own equilibrium, he says, I can get the plane into a lot of trouble. And the ultimate gauge here at water's edge is the Bible. This is what keeps us from becoming some whacked out cult. You know, the sole basis of what we believe is found in the Bible. And you just need to know this about Water's Edge. And I think that you'll need to determine for yourself what's the basis that you build your life on. The Bible speaks with the authority of God. It's the unique, full, final authority on matters of faith and practice. And at Water's Edge, it is the Bible and nothing else. Some people have the Bible plus something. Okay, uh, not only is it true, it's wisdom works. You can build your life off it. It teaches us how to know God, how to build a marriage, how to raise kids. It teaches us how to treat our body, how to handle our money, all kinds of subject matters. In fact, in Second Timothy chapter three, verse 15, it says the whole Bible has, was given to us by inspiration from God. And it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It straightens us out, and it helps us to do what's right. And the final authority, not only in our lives, but in this church, is the Bible. Not denominational statements, not because Oprah said it. And whenever there's a question about what we should do, we know where we can go to find the answer. We hold, the statement of faith says, these scriptures, this Bible, to be infallible. Now, let me explain that to you real quick. Infallibility is a theological term. You may have heard this expression before, inerrancy. That's a dictionary word. It means without error. Now, some people say the Bible is inerrant. We use the word infallible. And let me tell you why. If I had a list and it said eggs, bacon, and cheese, and eggs, bacon, and cheese were all spelled perfectly, my list would be without error. It's an inerrant list. But wouldn't you know it? I needed bread as well. So even though I have an inerrant list, I have a fallible list because one of the things I needed on the list wasn't there. But if I have a list that says eggs, bacon, cheese, and bread, and I spelled bread, B-R-E-D, I now have a, 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 a list that has an error. But it's infallible. Because everything I needed at the market was on that list. And what we are saying when we say that we believe in the infallibility of Scripture is we're saying that we believe that everything we need for faith and practice in our faith is in the Bible. And so if we have a relationship with God, it's because he broke through to get to us. And the Bible is a written summary of his attempts to do just that. There are other books, both modern and ancient, that contain helpful spiritual truth. 
but there are no other writings that are God-breathed in the way that the Bible is. And so I hope that you'll try to make regularly uh, make it a, p- a pattern for you to regularly study the Bible and, and read it. Now, just one last comment about this statement of faith is, the messages of any of the teachers here at Water's Edge must provide teaching that is supported by the Scripture. There's a denomination called the Evangelical Covenant Church, and they have a great motto. And here's the motto of their church. Where is it written? <laughs> That's a great motto. And so everything that we're trying to do comes solely off of what the Scriptures say. All right, number two. We believe that there's one God eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible begins with these words, or this phrase. Does anybody know what it says? In the beginning, God. God has always existed. His nature and His being are eternal. And we also learn that God, or about God from the Scriptures, that He is three distinct persons in one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so because the Bible teaches that there's one God and not three gods... We understand that these three persons fully share one and only divine nature. We use the term, and you may have heard this term, the Trinity. It's a label for the teaching that God is singular in nature, but he's plural in personality. I had to laugh. George Foreman, the famous boxer, one time was asked uh, if he believed in the, if he had any trouble understanding the Trinity. He said, oh, man, I understand it. Three in one oil. But... Uh, <laughs> But you may have heard illustrations like this. You have H2O, you have water, you have steam, and you have ice. Three different things of the same nature of of H2O. You may have heard it. My wife is uh, teaching third grade, and they have a lesson coming up this week where they're using an apple, the skin, the core, and the the meat of the apple. I don't know what you technically call that. Some people have done it with uh, speaking about eggs, like the shell, the yolk, and and the white. You know, all of them... Are in nature are an egg, but there's three parts that make up that egg. I, I think some of those illustrations break down, frankly. How I've come to understand the Trinity is psychologically. If I were to lock you in a room for the next ten days, it would be impossible for you to experience love, because you can only experience love if you're in relationship. See? Now, God... Three persons, the Bible says in Ephesians, because of the great love with which he has loved. You know, we make the statement, God is love. Well, how can you be love if you're not in relationship? How can you have love if you're not in relationship? God is in relationship with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I can't say, oh, hi, Bill, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, thank you, and how are you? Pretty good. Now, some people do that, but uh, we have places for them. But, uh, but, the, but the point is, the point is that God has the ability to experience relationship within himself. And we believe that God is in charge no matter how chaotic the world seems. We don't think that he micromanages the world in order to make us puppets. He sets up physical laws and spiritual laws, and there's room to operate within those. But we also believe that God intervenes in human history and that he sustains his his creation as well. If I put 25 cents in a drawer, and tomorrow I put 25 cents in the drawer, another 25 cents, And then I went back on Tuesday, and there wasn't 50 cents in the drawer. Would the law of mathematics have been broken? No. The laws of the state of California would have been broken. Somebody stole my 50 cents. And so I don't consult a mathematician to find out why the 50 cents is missing. I consult a detective. 
if I had lined up a cue ball to hit the eight ball to go in the side pocket, and just after I hit the cue ball, you pick up the eight ball, the cue ball goes by, you set the eight ball down, do I consult a physicist to find out why that eight ball didn't go in the side pocket? No. I consult a psychiatrist to find out what in the world possessed you to pick up that ball right at that time. There are certain laws within our our system, physical laws, and whenever one of those laws is broken, you don't necessarily consult a scientist to find out what happened because there's been some outside intervention. And so the miracles that take place that God makes and creates in the world and that Jesus has performed is is not a violation, it's an outside interference in, in terms of coming into that system. So, uh, knowing God, we believe, is our highest priority. Substituting any activity and allowing any passion to become stronger than that love for God, it becomes idolatry. And so we treat creation as something wonderful that God has made, so we don't abuse creation, but we don't worship it either. And we try to cultivate all that God has given us so that it can be used to further His purposes. We treat it as a stewardship for Him. And we want to preserve it, but more important, we want to preserve the people who are a part of it. We don't agree with any teaching or religious group that rejects God's revelation of Himself as Trinity. Which, by the way, is common among many, if not most, cults. Alright, number three. We believe in the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. In his virgin birth, in his sinless life, in his miracles, in his vicarious and atoning death through his shed blood, in his bodily resurrection, in his ascension to the Father, to the, to the right hand of the Father, in his present rule as head of the church, and in his personal return in power and glory. Jesus is the God-man. He's unlike any person who has or ever will live. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who was united with a true human nature, by miraculous conception in the virgin birth. He is not part divine and part human. He's 100% God and 100% human. It's called the hypostatic union. Got it. He lived a life of perfect obedience, and he voluntarily atoned for the sins of, of, of us by dying on the cross as our substitute. He rose from the dead in the same body in which he lived and died, though now glorified, and he ascended into heaven where he is the mediator between us and the Father. Okay, he's going to come to earth personally and visibly. Now listen, we're Christians, we're not Godians. Because our message is about Christ. His work, his divinity, our need to follow him, and any message that doesn't center on Christ, including his full humanity and divinity, as well as his forgiveness for sin, is not the gospel. Okay, number four. We believe that for the salvation of lost and sinful people, regeneration by the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. You know, the central purpose of God's revelation in Scripture is to call people into fellowship with himself. The common myth is that humans are basically good, but that's not supported by the Bible. We were originally created good, for the, but for the first man and woman rejected God's rightful place in their lives. And so we are now infected with this disease that's called sin. And we are spiritually separated from God. And if God left us to ourselves, all of us would continue in disobedience and, we, and rejection of him. The good news is that he's provided a way out of our dilemma through the death of Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins. And those who personally appropriate that forgiveness 
are restored into a right relationship with him. And this new life is a gift. It cannot be earned by any activities that we do, and it can't be revoked by any failures that we have. We live in the secure knowledge that the Christian life that we live is a thank you to God for the salvation that he has fully and completely provided. We don't think that our obedience somehow enhances his gift as if we could add something to what Christ has done. But also we don't treat it in a cavalier way as an excuse to go on living sinfully. All right, number five. We believe in the present ministry of the Holy Spirit by whose indwelling the Christian is enabled to live a godly life. A verse I learned long ago was uh, John 15, 5. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do... Does anyone know what the next word is? Nothing. Apart from me. I've often wondered how much nothing I do. (laughs) But... uh, But this is something we believe deeply. That Christ, by way of the Holy Spirit, is the source of life, not just for salvation, but for every day. Every day when we get up, we need to reconnect ourselves. Not in terms of salvation, but in terms of dependence. God, I depend on you today to get me through this day. You know, you're trying to live your life on your own strength, and often what that does is just leads to frustration and and sometimes exhaustion. God intends for you to be plugged into Him. He is the power source of life. And I didn't, if I didn't know that God was going to guide me uh, in my day, every day, I think in terms of strength and wisdom and patience, I'd probably have quit a long time ago. I know that there's at least one situation in each of your lives this morning that God has allowed it to be there if for no other reason it's so that you would be dependent on Him to keep you going. The essential complement of a genuine saving relationship with Jesus Christ would be to live a life of gratitude and obedience. And that happens only when we submit to the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to make this comment about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an energy or a force. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. It's a personality. When I came as the pastor, they didn't say, Bill, just send your mouth. You either get all of me or you get none of me. Because when I come, I come in my entirety. And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your life, He comes in His entirety. You have as much of the Holy Spirit as you're ever going to get. He might get a hold of more of you, but you have as much of Him as you're ever going to get. And so He works behind the scenes to prepare people to hear the Gospel, and then He applies the work of Christ to them at the point of regeneration. And here's some of the things that His ministry includes. Helping you understand the Bible. Making us aware of the things that we do that might not please God. Assuring us that we are God's children. Empowering us for witness. Giving us a unique gift to serve others. Helping our prayer life by interceding through us. I was just with a person the other day. And and uh, I was so grateful for this verse in Romans. It says, the Spirit takes our groanings <laughs> and translates them into words that the Father understands. And I was with this person who was going through something and I just went, ugh. That's a legitimate prayer. Because the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He takes our groanings and He translates them into words that God understands. And so He's producing us character that will make us credible and persuasive representatives of Jesus Christ. And because the Spirit resides in us, we want to listen for His promptings. We want to anticipate that indeed He's going to direct us, and He will do so if we're open to it. All right. 
One last area that's not included in the doctrinal statement. When I became a pastor here at Water's Edge, I was meeting with the committee, and I brought up a couple of years ago, uh, they said, do you believe all this? And I said, yes, I do. But I said, I think it's incomplete. And uh, I often thought that someday when we became our own church that the elders would get together and we'd say, okay, we're not going to take anything away from this, but is there anything that we might add? And there's one or two things that I thought we, we, we could add. And I mentioned it at that time. Sure enough, I printed the study notes this week, working off the Bel Air uh, Statement of Faith. And then I went onto their website last night, and I found that they added something that was not in the original thing that they had. And I'm pretty sure it was based on my conversation with them. And here's what it says. We believe in the resurrection of both the saved and the lost, the saved to eternity with God, and the lost to eternal separation from God. Now here's the deal. The death rate is 100%. Our relationship to God in eternity is set by how we respond to him in this life. Because death seals the eternal destiny of every person. And God has not only saved our souls, but he's going to resurrect our bodies in the form that's going to be suited for the environment of the eternal life that we inherit. Now, here's the remarkable thing about this. We get to choose. Our eternal condition is based on our life preferences. Heaven and hell simply are a fulfillment of our spiritual desires in this life. If we welcome God's presence and cooperated with him in our earthly life, he's pleased to continue that relationship on through eternity. But on the other hand, if we look for ways to avoid him and we sought to live in a behavior that that he condemned, he's going to allow us to continue unbothered by his presence and unbothered by his commands forever. Hell is just God's provision for those who want God to stop interfering with their plans and they wish that God would leave them alone. And they will be protected from God while those who highest delight was God will will spend an eternity in heaven. And we're able to enjoy forever the one who gave us pleasure here on earth. So knowing that our eternity is infinitely longer and more significant than, let's say, the 80 years or so, or I can tell you there's a person in this room who I think is 97 to, right now. But, but may all of us live that long. But I, what's the great line by Abe Lincoln? It's not the number of years in your life, but it's the life in your years. And uh, knowing that our eternity is longer and more significant than our years here on earth, we order our lives so that they will take into account this spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective. We choose our activities and our priorities based on God's pleasure. And the measure of the gospel is that it brings life to those who would perish otherwise without Christ. So therefore, what we want to do is we want to seek to present this message publicly and privately as often as we can, being sensitive to our listeners' needs and make sure that we communicate it in a way that's natural to our personality and through what I would call our evangelistic style. And so I believe that this statement here is an accurate summary of what Scripture teaches. Now, just real quick, uh, last week we talked about our mission statement. And uh, there's an old adage about mission. If you don't repeat it every five or six weeks, people forget because mission and vision leak. But just to remind you about our mission statement, I'll tell you how we got to it. It needed to be clear and understandable. 
It had to be brief enough to keep in mind. It had to clearly specify what business we were in. It had to define a primary focus or a single strategic thrust. It had to to reflect what the competence of our church was. And uh, it had to be broad enough to allow flexibility and implementation and not so broad that it would kind of have a lack of focus. It serves as a template and it makes means that our leaders of our church can make decisions based on that statement. It reflects our values, our beliefs, our philosophy of operations, and it reflects our church culture. It has to be attainable and it has to be worded to serve as an energy source rallying the rest of the church. So, Water's Edge exists to encounter God, embrace people, and engage the world. Think about Water's Edge would be like if we were radically devoted to Christ, encountering God. And think about what we'd be like if we were irrevocably committed to each other, embracing people. And think about what it would be like if we relentlessly dedicated ourselves to reaching those outside of God's family with the gospel of Christ, engaging the world. We would be an unstoppable force, a testimony to God's unfailing grace, And we would be a church against whom the gates of hell would not prevail. All right, our vision statement. Moving real quick. and We're going to nail this by 1030 because we're not going to do the core values. I put some of the things in there already and you can study those and read those on your own. Okay. Hey, how about a vision statement? It's God's will. It it, it has to align ourselves with God's will as we understand it. It has to move us to do great things, so it has to be challenging. It should paint a word picture, visibly, visually stated. It should stretch us. It takes us beyond our typical thinking and doing patterns. It has to be emotional. It generates some enthusiasm. It has to be achievable. Could you imagine that this could be possible? It has to be focused. It has to direct our energy towards a clear outcome. It has to be future-oriented. It's not a statement about who we are right now. It's a vision about who we want to become. And it has to be clear so it can be understood. It has to be short. Here's our vision statement. Our vision is to introduce people to the person of Christ so that they might know him, develop the disciplines to grow in him, discover their God-given gifts in order to serve him, and be equipped to share him with others. In knowing Christ, Jesus came to seek and save lost people. And many people in our society have turned off the church without understanding who Christ is and how to have a relationship with him. Here, you know, one of the greatest barriers to people coming to know Christ are Christians. And, and there's, the, and, and, and one of the things too, I think, is the church sometimes has, uh, well, I, I read a great uh, definition of, of the church one time. Uh, somebody said the greatest evidence that God exists is that the church still, the, the, the church still exists after 2,000 years of mismanagement. <laughs> so, that's true. A.W. Tozer said there's three great humiliations of Christ. The fact that he had to become a man, the fact that he had to die on the cross, and the fact that he had to identify with the local church. (laughs) So, listen, we're not perfect, but we're the bride of Christ. He loved the church and he gave himself for it. Some people, you know, they say, you know, well, uh, I I don't really need the church. That's like cutting your head off because Christ is the head of the church. And so... um, uh, so we want to provide opportunities in which people can learn the truth about Jesus in order to experience his love and forgiveness. 
And our desire is for each individual to discover a personal and life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. Then the second thing is growing in Christ. Once people have met Christ, growth in their faith becomes vital. It enables them to live obediently and, and be conformed to the character of Christ. And by the way, spiritual maturity is a process. You can't expect a baby, you know, to throw a football. It's a process of growth that takes place, and spiritually that's true too. And uh, there's certain daily habits that include Bible reading and prayer, corporate worship, stewardship of our time and resources, accountability, which is necessary to, to maintain these disciplines. So we want people to grow. Third is to serve. Salvation in Jesus Christ always includes a call to ministry. God has uniquely shaped every one of you here for service. And we believe that Christians will become fruitful and fulfilled when they discover and develop and they use the God-given gifts that God has given to them. Every believer is equally important in ministry in the body of Christ. And so our task is to help you identify and then train you and support you in terms of your ministry. If you want to think about it, I'm the administer and you're the ministers. And my job is to administer the ministers to go out and do the work of God's ministry. And then finally, sharing Christ. We desire that every believer would be equipped to share the gospel consistent to their personal style. On a local level, individuals are committed to praying for and building genuine relationships with unbelievers and sharing Christ and the impact that he's made in their life. And our goal is to ultimately see that we can reach others who will reach others. And on a worldwide basis, we want to participate in mission endeavors through prayer, financial support, and serving both short-term and long-term missionaries. All right. Let me just close by making this, this kind of statement. Thanks for hanging with me. I know today was kind of had to put your seatbelts on to stay there. But uh, I think these are important foundational things to know. But our church will never seek to bind your conscience to areas that the Bible does not address. We don't have extra biblical rules here. We won't be legalistic. There's not going to be any scorekeeping. There's no judgmentalism. You're smart. You've got the Holy Spirit in your life. So let God lead you and use your best judgment, good judgment. And where the Bible is clear, we're going to to preach with clarity and power and passion. And uh, and where there's, there's other areas that are... Up for grabs? We're going to love everybody. Now, that's our statement of faith. I hope you'll take the risk of kind of living out what you say you believe. Will the Bible be the sole compass of your life? Is God, through Jesus Christ, the CEO of your life? Would you invite Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and friend and allow the Holy Spirit to grow you and empower you and guide you? And would you just relax about your eternity because it's been purchased for you on the cross and just anticipate the joy of heaven and be part of the church in a dynamic and serving way and in a growing way. And uh, we need you, and I think you need each other as well. That's enough for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, The things we've talked about today at the the core are kind of the essentials. But uh, I just thank you for your word. I pray today that by way of your Holy Spirit, you will confirm these truths to the hearts of the people who are here. Keep us open to one another. And uh, for those who are just 
kind of getting on the road and trying to make some discoveries about their spiritual life. I know today may have been pretty heavy, but ultimately it just boils down to a relationship with you. So thank you that you love us and you care about us. And uh, by way of your spirit, if you're prompting anybody here, you're just kind of saying, hey, you know God loves you. You know that Christ died for you. Would you help them by, to respond to those promptings by putting their faith in you? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.